What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. It's in the Scottish government's interest, not just to protect, obviously, public services, but also to show further divergence from the rest of the UK. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. The other factor playing into all this is Brexit. Neither political party will even contemplate relaxing EU migration. This is the elephant in the room, isn't it? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Coming up on today's programme. So we're going to bring you a deep dive into the housing market. It's the end of the help to buy scheme. So our reporter Neil Callanan and John Charcoal's Ray Bulger will be joining us later on in the programme. Caroline, I want to start the show with a number. Hmm, is this a Friday quiz for me? It is. Well, a little bit, yeah. Go it's on. a very small number. <laughs> 0.08%. What does that refer to? Well, I know exactly what it refers to. This is the, well, percentage of nuts that you've left for everybody else in the canteen upstairs. So uh, my cashew eating habit should not be a matter of public record. Uh, yeah, no, it is uh, to do with trade, of course. This is the alphabet soup of trade deals. Britain has managed to secure a new one. This is the trade pact with 11 Asia and Pacific nations. It's called the CPTPP. Yes, I did manage to get it right. Thing is, it's a long way away in terms of trading countries, even though they're very important in global trade. But that was the government estimate of how much it would actually benefit us in terms of GDP. Yeah, less than one uh, tenth of of 1% of of GDP. Yeah, Brunei and Malaysia are actually the only two countries of the 11 which we don't already have a trade deal with. So that's why the impact is, is so small. Yeah, and also I've heard lots of people refer to it basically as a symbolic victory, as a big step forward for Brexit, that at least deals are being done. Um, Some doubts also, for example, from Gerard Lyons, who has advised, for example, Mm. Boris Johnson, well-known economist in the UK, uh, also gave some advice to the former Prime Minister Liz Truss. You know, he was saying... Uh, this is an underestimate, basically, because these these economies like Australia and Japan and uh, Singapore are growing so quickly that actually longer term it could be a much bigger benefit. I have my doubts. Yeah, and of course there is the hope that the uh, pact itself will grow so more countries will be added and perhaps we can deepen the free trade arrangement. So maybe it is um, something for the for, for the future. But of course this estimate is the government's own estimate. That is the problem. Yeah, hard to escape that one. So let's stick with the numbers then, shall we? Because, of course, uh, that's why you come to Bloomberg, frankly. The UK government has spent less than 10% Ewan, of its funds for levelling up since it was launched in 2020. Yeah, quite something. It's according to figures obtained by the Labour Party, less than £400 million out of £4.8 billion has been spent. The levelling up department says that it's always been clear that councils will receive funding over time. Well, let's speak to Shadow Levelling Up Minister Alex Norris. Alex, thanks for joining us on Bloomberg UK Politics. We've discussed the the wooliness of the concept of levelling up on the show before. What, what does what does levelling up mean to you? Well, we think, you know, the, the, the root concept that, you know, there are nations and regions across our country that don't have the same opportunities as others is bad for those areas, but bad for the collective as a whole. You know, relying on a small number of people in a small corner of the country is not the way 
uh, to develop an economy. We, of course, would not want, as we see in too many communities, children's opportunities to be preordained uh, by where they're born and or you know young people having to leave communities to access opportunities so that at its root is is correct the problem is we don't see a decent public policy answer to it and and these figures i think are emblematic of that the problem is though that it's just so sprawling i mean bloomberg has done the extensive work around the socio-economic metrics of leveling up i mean we've got a a, a leveling up scorecard and that we've been updating regularly um Leveling up, we know, has not um, worked well. It hasn't worked for Scotland in the most recent update, and it's gotten worse over time, if anything. But as you say, the fundamental idea of bringing everybody up, all nations and regions up more, is essential. So what would you do differently? You have to have levelling up, whether you call it that or something else. Yeah, I think you do. I mean, what we do know is that, you know, first of all, the part of the problem was this was dealing with it as a two and three year program because you know frankly the there was a political perceived political dividend to that well that is a very bad approach this is a much longer term project we're trying to reverse or we're trying to address three and four decades of deindustrialization and globalization we're well, not going to do that you know with one press release as as the government seems to have wanted to do what we need to see is we need to build from the success of of, um, of regional devolution, but making sure that all communities have access to that and have access to, you know, to highest powers, because that's the toolkit that helps them uh, change their local economies so that people can participate. And I believe that that will lead to growth across all of our nations and regions. But we also need that where there is this money to get projects going, you know, that where those commitments have been made, that actually those promises are kept, that those decisions are made in a timely way, that those decisions are made on clear criteria targeted at communities. Okay, that so how would you make that happen? You, you say 90% of the money hasn't been spent. How would you actually make it happen? I mean, you're talking about targets. You know, these are just some of the metrics, right? Salaries, universal credit, life expectancy, productivity, perennial problem for Britain, crime, foreign investment. I mean, this is like a huge brief. How would you make it happen in terms of delivering that money? I think how you make that happen, as I say, starts with having the right powers and levers in the regions, the nations and regions themselves. So you have to have that basic architecture there. You're then saying, actually, that you want to see devolved spending decisions that are taken uh, in Whitehall. We're a hugely centralised country. So, you know, through our Take Back Control bill that, that Keir Starmer committed to in January, we're talking about devolution over skills, devolution over uh, local transport, devolution over DWP and job programmes. Those are create that alchemy. The money, actually, that, that we're talking about here, the kind of beauty parade money that the government have failed to get out the door well that's actually i think a bit on top of that but as i say the one thing that you could do is that once you've made communities jump through hoops to get these bids in and you've said yes to them well give them the money but how does it not become completely politicized basically if you devolve it to the regions why would you not you know perhaps have the tendency to favor your own political camp in you know the areas where you're strongest that that's a real danger yeah, and, and there has to be, you know, there has to be a judgment by the public about the leaders they choose as to who's motivated in that way. I can only say that, you know, I, I approach this as someone who loves my city, my region, and my country, and and is invested in the success of all of us. And when I, but you know, my politics in that is that I believe that the funding should go at communities who need it the most, those who are furthest away from being levelled up, as we would see it. I uh, think that's Alex, legitimate. There are other it, arguments to that, of course, but that's mine. 
Alex, is, it, is Labour's approach fundamentally different to the government's or would you just want the money to be spent more quickly and better? Yeah, our, our, our approach is fundamentally different in that what we've said throughout is that actually you need to get away from these beauty parades because this levelling up fund is one of over, I think it's 300 plus such funds across government that communities put an awful lot of energy into um, into bidding into. You have to base it on the criteria that the government wants, not what you want locally, So, because otherwise you won't win. What we're saying is we need to end this broken culture, uh, get that money together as best as you can, and then target it at the communities that need it the most and let them make those decisions about what their area needs. And in some cases, that might be town centre improvement, which is where a lot of this money is supposed to go. In other cases, it will be transport. In other cases, it might be early years, you know, but those should be local decisions. So that's the distinction. Rather than having this kind of top-down process, we'd have one that reflects local need and, and local leadership. Isn't the danger with that, though, that you end up with a, with a disjointed process that, that levelling up doesn't really happen everywhere you want it to happen in the country and, and some places end up with, with, with much, much more infrastructure than others? Well I, well, I don't believe that, actually. You know, at the end of the day, I put a lot of stock in you know, the, the talents and the abilities and the insight of local leaders. So I think we can trust you know, those local uh, you know, whether it's local authorities, combined authorities to make those decisions. Will things look differently? Well, yeah, of course they will. That That's a that's a feature, not a bug, um, because actually in the future, you know, if mm. you take somewhere like you know where I am in the centre of the country, well, we're going to be really good at freight because everything has to come through us at some point. We're not going to be a tidal superpower because we're the furthest from uh, the sea you could be. So, of course, those things will look different in different parts of the country, but a highly centralised model has not delivered. So we need to beat that rather than, you know, as I say, be anxious that things may be different or they'll go in different directions, as I say, because I, th- I think that's how it's supposed to work. I have one question for you um, just on the kind of labour pitch, as it were, to business, because what basically has happened since Brexit is that there's been a significant dent to the UK in terms of trade and attractiveness as an investment destination. That is the number one problem for this government. It's also, I'd argue, going to be the number one problem for the Labour Party. Can Labour consistently make that argument, deliver that case, that the Labour Party can, as it were, be trusted with business and to stabilise the UK economy? Yeah, well, you know, I believe so. What the offer is for us, and I hope that this is quite an exciting offer, we're not just saying to business, you know, come and invest across our our nations and regions. We're saying, come and invest, commit to a community have a say in it, you know, be involved in shaping the labour pool, because we know that's one of the major concerns uh, that, that puts people off from investing. You know, you will not only be someone who, you know, who operates in an area, but you will be part of a fabric that designs the economy for the future, that we're going to add, you know, skilled jobs across our nations and regions, and they can be part of that. I think that's quite an exciting offer. You know, we've obviously, you know, we've made significant commitments around our green prosperity plan. You know, you know the sorts of new industries that we want to be uh, in the forefront of. Someone in Europe is going to be the green energy kind of leader. Why not us? So again, that for those sorts of organisations, well, we'll want to back them and support them to get going. So yeah, I think okay. that's quite an exciting offer. There is no route, you know, and it's important, I think, for a politician from the left to say this, there's no route to levelling up and to tackling all those social challenges that inequalities bring without significant private sector growth. It fundamentally has to be a private sector uh, development yeah. in that way. That's where those jobs okay. come from. We are very yeah. much open for 
Alex, uh, housing is part of your brief. I want to ask you uh, about Help to Buy. Help to Buy has boosted house building prof- house builders' profits enormously. It is it has pushed up the price of housing for everybody else. Was the whole thing a massive mistake? Well, the the, the problem is, and this is you know endemic of, of of how our approach has been to this in this country for a long time. These demand side. Um, you know, bits of support, even well meant, because actually, you know, we know it's hard for people to get onto the ladder. So the government should have an interest in helping people where they can. But unless that is accompanied by a proper supply side plan, then what you create is obviously, you know, growth in profits, extra pressure on, on you know, on, on a finite stock. So, you know, as I say, I think there's lots of well meant elements to it, but done in isolation, then it hasn't done what but, it's, it's so, supposed to have done. So, so would you agree that it was a mistake then? Side. Would you agree that it was a mistake? Well, it hasn't worked, so it can't not have been a mistake. I mean, I, as I say, I, 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 I'm slightly reticent that you know to for have listeners just to always to hear opposition politicians saying how badly the government had done. What I would say is it didn't work for very good reasons that we said at the time wouldn't have worked, and you know we need to address those supply side issues. Well, to be fair, a lot of people made that criticism at the time yeah. um, that, that, you know, we understood perfectly well that it was going to simply inflate home prices. The thing is, now that those home prices are deflating, is that a good thing as far as you're concerned, given the run up in prices, the lack of affordability of housing, the latest nationwide house price a survey showing the sharpest annual pace of decline since 2009? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we have to understand that that also comes with its own consequences. So I don't think people would want to see kind of politicians necessarily cheerleading for that. The key thing for me is, do we believe that we are building enough houses of all the tenures um, so that people can access those that those those housing opportunities? Of course, the answer to that is no. So we need an entire, you know, countrywide approach, well, nations and regions as wide as well approach to tackling that it is a fundamental challenge mm. this government and for any future government and as i say we're, we're very mindful of that and there are obviously of course huge opportunities in it as well there are councils in london largely labor controlled have pretty much given up the idea of building social housing uh, social housing affordable housing whatever you want to call it they've handed over building to as you say the private sector to big developers and they've not been very good at extracting social housing you know from that contract with private builders i think that's a real area of focus for labor have you have you thought about how that could be improved if you were to win the next general election yeah, well, I, th- I think that's very much symptomatic of the challenge we're talking about, because the problem is that the demand is not currently, um, you know, the demand is concentrated in a small corner of the country, which again shows that even those who've won out the current economic settlement in Britain actually lose because of the pressure on housing, because of the pressure on public services. And until we have a more balanced economy across all our nations and regions, then you're going to have those demand type challenges that makes actually that Uh, that gives the the power perhaps just to developers. And I think that actually, you know, when we start to see regional economies developing better, that will even out that demand that will want, you know, not everybody wants to live in London, funnily enough, is my experience. But at the moment, (laughs) that's what, but if that's where the jobs are, if that's where the opportunities are, of course they're going to be drawn there. So Alex, you know, that's almost heresy, I would say, talking to a programme based right. here in the, in the <laughs> city Possibly. of London. No, I joke. Well, maybe, maybe it's because I'm sat in Nottingham. So, uh, <laughs> but yes. Um, but as I say, you know, we we need we need demand in other parts of the country as well, and that is again a levelling up conversation. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. That's Alex Norris, uh, Shadow Levelling Up Minister and MP for Nottingham North. Of course, thank you for joining us on the show.
So we were speaking uh, to Alex about those home prices and I just wanted to delve a bit deeper into the story. So the nationwide figures came out this morning. The average cost of a home fell 3.1% from a year ago in March. So you can see sort of from August, house prices across the UK have really started to tumble. It was the sharpest annual uh, pace of decline since 2009. And also, Ewan, today is actually the last day that you can buy a house under the Help to Buy scheme. So joining us to discuss this is Bloomberg's senior reporter Neil Callanan and John Charcoal's senior mortgage technical manager Ray Bulger, who's a regular on Bloomberg Radio. So lovely to have both of you with us. Neil, I just want to start on the house price story. Um, Wasn't it you that predicted a 40% drop? Are we still on track for such a terrible uh, downbeat assessment of where the UK housing market could go? Uh, a 40% decline in real terms. So yes. that's inflation <laughs> adjusted and that's very, very important. So if you think about where um, inflation has gone since August as well, as well as the house prices, you're getting close to 10% already mm. as a downturn. So I think it, it, it really the final amount that you come up with in terms of house price projections depends on your outlook for inflation and whether you see it being sticky or not. And the Bank of England is very clear that it sees it falling substantially in the second half of this year and going into next year. The question a lot of people will ask is if you're a buying manager or a CFO and you're, you've gotten used to in the last year and a half increasing your prices twice a year as opposed to once a year previously, are you going to give up that pricing power, particularly when consumers so far have been willing to absorb those price increases uh, without necessarily it affecting sales? So it's, it's really going to depend on how sticky inflation is going forward. On the housing market side, yeah, the, the outlook remains poor. Um, again, it goes back to inflation being sticky and how long rates stay high for. If rates, okay. st- rates above 4% usually means house prices are going to fall. So do you stick to that rates. 40% then at this point? Um, yeah. It's tricky, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is. It's always tricky. And I, I had a knot in my stomach when I said that <laughs> because you never know if the government's going to do something else that will kickstart the market again. But on, on current projections, I would say yes. Um, but it large chunk of that 40% is inflation. Right now, I'm not, I'm not going to ask you for your prediction on house prices, but I do want you to give us an update on the status of the mortgage market. We are depressingly today a quarter of the way through the year. How did that happen? <laughs> T- tell us, 2023, how are mortgages looking? I know we're a, a lot better than we were in the wake of the mini budget uh, last year. Um, yes, they are. But actually, house prices are very relevant. So um, I would just like to add some comments to that. I, I think mm. the 40% increase is excessive. But Nationwide and Halifax always insist on t- talking about manipulated rates or what they call seasonally adjusted. If you look at the real change in house prices since the August peak based on the Nationwide index, it's actually fallen 6.1%. And because we're talking about... Um, months falling out of the index, it's actually not too difficult to see what's going to happen over the next few months. Now, in April, May and June last year, prices rose by nearly 1%. So it's quite easy to see that by the middle of this year, um, with uh, with only modest further falls in house prices, the year-on-year figure is going to be down 10 to 12%. Um, and I personally think that's probably where where it, it will be the weakest. Now, in terms of inflation, uh, again, depends what your starting point is. But if you're starting with August, where house prices peaked, I'm um, looking at inflation over a year from August. Then uh, I think, in real terms, we're probably looking at house prices falling something like 20, 25 percent. So certainly a substantial fall. And it's interesting to talk in real terms because people often ignore that. 
Now, moving on <laughs> yes. to... Moving on to the mortgage market, yes, things are definitely looking much, um, much better. I mean, bizarrely, the banking crisis, well, perhaps crisis is too strong a word, but the, the impact of Silicon Valley Bank and, and, and Credit Suisse and the other banks where we've had problems has actually benefited mortgage borrowers because it's actually resulted in a bit of a flight to quality, gilt prices falling as people have bought gilt, and that's actually allowed mortgage rates to fall. So rates were beginning to pick up a little bit. We're, we're now seeing five-year fixed rates back down to about 3.9%. Um, and and on, on the basis, it looks as if bank rate, if it hasn't peaked at four and a quarter, has only got another quarter point to go. And then it's a case of when it starts to fall. Um, mm. I do think we're looking at mortgage rates probably not, not moving too far from current levels for the next few months. Okay. Um, now, the other key point in terms of looking at borrowing power is that um, a lot of people did choose five-year fixed rates last year very sensibly. So we are going to see people with existing mortgages coming to the end of their current deal uh, over the next four years or so. So the impact of the bank rate increases and the increase in mortgage rates is going to be felt much more slowly this time than it has done in previous um, periods when we had a big bank rate rise. So I think that is bound to be reflected in house prices over the period of um, the next few years and, and that that will constrain any impact we might see in terms of house prices starting to pick up on that so that a lot to sort of think about there um and yes whether we sort of see a flattening out of the housing market over many many years that's sort of the other kind of slow um uh, impact that could be felt help to buy though neil what do you think is the legacy of this programme? I mean, I remember before it came in, there were lots of people warning about how this was simply another intervention book by government that would end up fueling house price inflation, house price growth. Remember, this is the help that was given to first-time buyers to get on the property ladder with a 5% deposit so they could borrow 20% of the purchase price, 40% in London. That is all wrapping up now. But what's your conclusion about whether it was worth it? Uh, I think what it did what the government wanted, which was to stimulate demand to get house prices back up uh, from the lows of about 2011. The main equity loan program was brought in in 2013. I think most people, and including government reports into it, show that it probably should have ended a lot earlier than it did. And the big beneficiary was home builders rather than home buyers. Yeah. Um, and in fact, in London, it's had a really negative effect where actually the amount of construction hasn't really gone up, but prices have gone up a lot as a direct result of this program. Um, home builders have uh, boosted the new home, new build premium that always exists because you get your new kitchen and your new windows and doors and a better quality EPC um, rating in general. So there's, there's always a premium, but it, it, it certainly boosted that. But those people who bought in the last few years using this program are going to come off now to face substantially higher borrowing because they might have had a 40% loan from the government at a much, much higher rate. And so a lot of them will already be in negative equity because apartment prices, which are the main t things that people bought in London, have gone nowhere really since 2016. Yeah. And now suddenly you're going to have to pay a way higher mortgage on a property that's worth less than you paid for it. So the government made two, about £2 billion from this scheme. A lot of people would ask whether this money would have been better being spent directly with contractors of building homes as opposed to being paid by buyers on homes where the developer premium is charged in. Ray, we've seen 
big drops in house prices in New Zealand, in Canada, in Sweden, in many other markets around the world. Is it your contention that that the the, the demand in this country, the, the the plenty of demand for housing, is it your contention that that is going to keep a cap on declining prices as we go through the year? Uh, yes, I think there's no doubt that because of, of the rate of increase in the population and demand for housing being greater than the supply of new housing, that is, is going to restrict the rate of fall. Um, in the short term, um, supply and demand is clearly going to be a factor. In, in the medium to long term, other factors like affordability, which clearly is primarily based on interest rates, you know, have a much bigger influence. Okay. Neil, you wanted to add a thought. Yeah, I, I think it's worth pointing out, though, as well, that, you know, everybody yesterday was focused on the fact that the number of applicants for mortgages and mortgages approval numbers were up. But actually, the amount of advanced in mortgages was 70% below the estimates. Okay. So if people are borrowing less. They're getting mortgage approval, but they're not actually drawing down those mortgages. And uh, demand exists until at such time as things become affordable, unaffordable. Um, when things are unaffordable, the demand dries up. So lots of people will want to buy houses, and that demand will be there, but their ability to actually do that yeah. is significantly going to diminish over the next 12 months. Neil, which is where I sort of want to conclude this, which is... This is surely a generational issue and it is becoming a political one, surely. Is it, do you think, going to feature even more in the next general election, let's say, you know, how to deal with the housing issue? I, th I think it will, but, uh, you know, people also need to realise that lower house prices is often a good thing for the economy. It frees up the labour force. It allows you to invest money into other things. There's a lot of money that's been invested by people into passive things like a house price, a rising house prices that could have been invested into something that would be economically more beneficial going forward. So I, I think sometimes the UK gets very wrapped up in house prices being, you know, it's the main source of people's wealth. So people yes. can focus on it an awful lot. But actually for the economy, lower house prices than what we have now could actually be a good thing. OK, so a bigger perspective uh, is of benefit. Neil, thank you so much for being with us. Our senior reporter, Neil Callan, and also from John Charcoal, their senior mortgage technical manager, Ray Bulger. Thank you to both of you for joining us here on Bloomberg UK Politics. Yeah, the other thing these days, in the last year or so, rents have gone up so much. That is also another key factor for the generational problem is that a young, yeah. lot of young people are spending more money on rent than they were before, and that's making saving for a deposit even more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Tangential, but also it's usually important too. Right, that's it uh, from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Chris Pitt and our audio engineer was Mariful Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepgett. We'll be back with more next week. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.